Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We've got you yet another episode of the Basin Breakdown, and this will be the first episode of Basin Breakdown 2021, kicking it off with the month of January. As always, it is myself, Tavis, joined by not actually Kevin today, but Gunnar Merrick here at Rare Petro. What is up, party people? I guess I should uh, introduce myself slightly. I've been uh, working here for Rare Petro for three years, and this will probably be my first actual podcast that gets published. I've been told that I have a very monotone, um, not necessarily soothing voice, but it projects. So uh, we'll we'll see how uh, how I'm fit for the uh, social medias. Hey, well, I tell you what, I got a good face for radio. So between us, we got something going on. But without any further setbacks or formalities, we're just going to hop right into the stories, starting, as we always do, here in Colorado at the DJ, Nyabrera, and Piance Basins. If you didn't know, the BLM headquarters is actually located in Grand Junction. Well, for the moment. While Biden continues to unravel work and policies set into motion by the Trump administration, some worry that this may once again change the location of the BLM headquarters. Back in the summer of 2020, the BLM was moved out west as 99% of the federal land is actually managed there. It was also done to encourage those working in the BLM to be more involved with those their policies were directly affecting, and the tax savings would be substantial. When Biden revoked the Keystone XL permit, Colorado Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper sent a letter to the president explaining why they think the headquarters should remain out west. The two Democrats wrote, We write to express our continued support for a fully functioning Bureau of Land Management headquarters in Grand Junction, Colorado. End quote. While Biden has not made any statements regarding plans for the headquarters, the Colorado Senators asked for even more autonomy on behalf of the organization. The move was criticized early on as some worried the new headquarters would diminish the agency's influence, and Biden has established a centralized federal goal of achieving environmental greatness, which means another relocation of the BLM headquarters is not out of the question. So I don't know too much about the BLM or why the Colorado senators would really want the headquarters to stay here, but Gunnar, you've got a little bit more experience with that uh, department, no? Yeah, so a fun fact, I actually was an intern with the BLM here in their Colorado office two summers ago. Um, it was an awesome experience. It was really cool getting that regulatory exposure. Um, but I do remember everybody being fairly excited for the headquarters to move out here. It kind of makes sense. Uh, the majority of federal lands are out west, so it, it kind of falls in line that the headquarters should be close to that land. Obviously, there is an element of influence potentially lost, not having a, a large physical presence in D.C., but I think the benefits of being closer to your constituents in terms of the uh, Native American organizations that you work with, uh, actually visiting your federal lands um, from a federal employee standpoint makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and those were some of the key points in the reasoning of moving the headquarters out here to begin with. So moving it back to DC on such short notice doesn't make a, a ton of sense to me, but it could ultimately prove useful. So our next story, January ushered in a load of new representatives, including Colorado Senator Chris Hansen. He abandoned the engineering business to run for office with a primary objective of addressing climate change. He worked with renewable energy and electricity companies for more than 20 years and was even a senior director at IHS Market. When pressed about his policies centering around the development of beneficial electrification, he explained that he is working to serve the best interests of energy customers from their economics to their carbon footprint. He puts it, you're basically trying to replace something that is costly with something that's cheaper with lower emissions using electricity. 
Other highlights of his interview with Empowering Colorado include his plan to charge for air pollution and revamp the gas tax that has been static in the state for more than 30 years. All right, two thoughts. First one, this is not the same Chris Hansen as Dateline NBC, of course. Secondly, I think it's interesting how he says oh, you're trying to replace something that is costly with emissions with something that's cheaper with low emissions, but that to me sounds like having your cake and eating it too if you are worried about the consumers and their economics. Yeah, and, and really I think this in a, a certain vein is one of the issues we're seeing across the U.S., especially in politics, is that people just don't really understand where their energy is coming from and what really goes into that energy creation. I mean, we could dump millions and millions of dollars into infrastructure improvements, or we could put that money into a renewable green development, which we already have a system to supply that energy. So I don't know what's more important to you. And then lastly for Colorado, compressors are vital in transporting natural gas from site to site, but some of the utilized tech is outdated or failing. Fortunately, both environmental groups and some oil and gas industry reps have come to an agreement that they hope to introduce to the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission during the next meeting. From the information released so far, it seems that the group would like to retrofit compressors with safer tech in an attempt to limit the small amount of methane leaking each time it opens or closes. The group also claims that their plan would allow the state to target the worst offenders, that is, the leakiest and oldest compressor controllers, in order to better reach climate goals that have been established for the future. Dan Haley, president and CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, said, This agreement among industry and conservation groups will allow for the thoughtful reduction of emissions and the improvement of Colorado's air quality. I mean, nothing crazy here, but definitely cool to see we're making an effort to update the old. Yeah, and I think this kind of falls into one of those uh, natural processes. Um, naturally, the technology will get better, so it makes sense to regulate and uh, promote the replacement of older technologies. So this is something that just makes sense. Moving up north a little bit, we have the Powder River Basin. While federal drilling ban has sweeping immediate impacts, Wyoming is perhaps one of the most affected. Because they produce a large portion of their hydrocarbons on federal lands, it is going to be difficult to drill new wells. This means that the state budget was already tight through 2020 and will now only grow tighter if reserves can't be replaced. Wyoming Superintendent Jillian Balow claims the ban will decrease funding available to schools. She was surprised with the orders after listening to months of rhetoric on national unity and said, Funding for public education in Wyoming and other states has been eviscerated by an order issued by Acting U.S. Interior Secretary De La Vega. Wyoming depends on more than $150 million in federal royalties for oil and gas annually to support schools. This doesn't include the royalties that are raked in to support local government bodies or other public organizations. The superintendent encouraged those who are concerned to speak out against the, the funding, claiming, quote, Our students, teachers, and communities simply cannot afford this draconian executive order. And I, I kind of feel for her here because, yeah, of course, we want to transition to less emissions, you know, more renewable sources, yeehaw, but we forget how much of the money is brought in to support a lot of our public and social programs and how much of that comes directly from severance taxes. Yeah, it, again, here we're just seeing another uh, representation of larger issues, and I think eventually it'll get sorted out, but in the short term, yeah, these Wyoming schools are going to lose a lot of their funding. And this next article actually highlights that previous one explaining the issue. I mean, Wyoming policymakers are upset with the new order because they are swimming in what happens to be federally owned land. 
Only 10% of oil and gas production in the United States occurs on federal land, but in Wyoming, more than half of oil production is drilled on federal land, along with 92% of natural gas. This contributes to 38% of natural gas produced on federal land nationwide. The Petroleum Association of Wyoming plans to take, quote, all legal means at our disposal, end quote, to challenge the ban. Senator John Barrasso said, quote, Wyoming and other western states have oil and gas lease sales scheduled. Several of these lease sales will be held in the next 60 days. Slowing these projects down will kill jobs for hardworking Americans and reduce a critical source of revenue to states like Wyoming. Although many are upset with the ban, conservation groups feel that this provides an opportunity to revisit old permitting policies and are excited for a revamp of regulations, but again, that was back in January when I found that article, and I don't know if those sentiments still stand. I've not seen a lot of work done around this outside of, hey, it's just a ban. Yeah, I mean, again, it's going to get worked out. It's going to take some time. And in the meantime, people will suffer. But those are about the most exciting things going on in Wyoming right now, so how about we move over to the Marcellus Basin? Typically, we spend a lot of time talking about Pennsylvania, but this one kind of extends to the neighbors and fellow consumers of energy in that region, Baltimore. So the city of Baltimore is suing more than a dozen oil and gas companies for damages associated with rising tides, extreme weather, and stronger hurricanes. This is not the first time a city, county, or state has sued an oil and gas company, but the broad targeted scope raises questions of precedence. A federal district judge decided that it was okay to try Baltimore's lawsuit in-state rather than a federal arena where these problems are typically sorted out based on a single jurisdiction rule. After the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the decision, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, and other companies being sued went further with filings. The operators in the Marcellus Basin who are being sued are pressing the court to consider the consequences of allowing state courts to have jurisdictions over these lawsuits. If it is decided that Baltimore can try this case in-state, there are 23 other city, county, and state governments that have filed similar lawsuits and can try their issues in their state court. This would mean that arguments centered around the Federal Clean Air Act and other federal guidelines would have less pull in state courts than they initially did in the federal courts, leaving oil and gas companies in a much more vulnerable position. What started as a purely technical suit is evolving into a much bigger foreshadowing of what courts nationwide may expect or not expect to encounter. Um, yeah, this one to me is just jurisdictionally incorrect. All right. The, if you are touting climate change as a global issue, which it is, and then you are choosing to sue in a state court, that just doesn't make sense. I think that this belongs in the federal realm. And if we're going to go that route, why not the UN? Exactly. That would be way more appropriate. And who knows, maybe the outcome wouldn't be one we'd like to see. But I will say, if we do give the states this kind of power, oh my God, can you imagine what happens in California when the states can try them for environmental day? They have a hard enough time already. So I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah, and really, in, this sets a precedent not only for um, oil and gas companies, but potentially down the line, any company that has some sort of uh, environmental impact. Speaking of damages... Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf is receiving pressure from environmental groups to cancel a wastewater injection well. Penico Environmental Solutions LLC applied for a UIC permit for this well six years ago. In that time, hundreds of locals had voiced their opposition on the grounds of the constitutional right to clean air and water, although they didn't spend that time learning about <laughs> injection wells. Some even appealed the state's decision, but have now dropped 
the appeal, saying the litigation would be too expensive and likely futile. The most recent letter to the governor alleged that the well has engineering inadequacies and risks earthquakes, water contamination, and rivers full of radioactive materials. A spokesperson from the governor addressed the issue, saying that he alone does not have the power to revoke or suspend permits, and pointed out the Department of Environmental Protection had previously given the project a green light. The project is aiming to be operational by March, but the surrounding residents are doing their best to rally more people to their cause. I guess, if anything, this goes back to uh, the, the theme of January Basin Breakdown, where not everyone's a technical expert, right? They want to consume this energy. They see that there's a byproduct. They don't want the byproduct you know, in their backyards, albeit very far underneath their backyards. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, Pennsylvania's had... Uh, injection water issues in the past and so i think a lot of the concern stems from that um and obviously they need to have adequate engineering but if it's signed off by the epa um you can't really do much in court not even the epa the state's department of environmental protection and they said yeah so i understand why they said too expensive and futile heading back out west we have the bakken Senate Bill 2064 was introduced to the North Dakota Senate in an attempt to hold corporate officers liable for oil and gas-related violations. State Mineral Resources Director Lynn Helms requested a bill of this nature following recent environmental problems in their fields. Corporate officers of some companies refused to fix issues or ultimately abandoned sites leaving the state to foot the bill which totaled more than a million dollars for only two properties. Senate Bill 2064 died with a vote of 7 to 39. The North Dakota Petroleum Council and Greater North Dakota Chamber lobbied against the bills as they felt it would create a negative climate for business and unfairly target the industry. Many Republicans echoed these concerns as Rep. Jim Roars said, We have corporations and partnerships that provide protections for certain individuals and we felt by passing this bill we would violate those protections and CEOs Boards of directors could now be held liable for things they would have very little knowledge of what was going on. So I understand his concern there. Some corporate officer far off uh, operating at the headquarters out of state didn't know that some environmental, uh, I'm not going to say catastrophe, but mishap happened and that they had to take care of it. But also, if it's cost the state a million dollars on two wells, two properties, I, I don't know how they define it. I guess we really just need more specifics, but I can see why they would be concerned on dishing out that much cash on a well-by-well basis. Yeah, and, and to an extent, this kind of falls in the public domain. If the site is abandoned, if the, if the entity that owned and operated that lease no longer exists, which we're seeing a lot of lately, um, that needs to be taken care of by the state. Uh, it's just how it is. It's how our country operates currently. It could foster a poor environment, um, it, but I think... Going after the entity itself makes sense. Going after the individuals in charge of that entity, um, that's not realistic in the long run. A poor decision indeed. And speaking of poors, both, you know, ill-equipped and the rock kind, January was a big win for landowners in the Bakken, in North Dakota area as a judge struck down a poor space law from 2019. Essentially, this law addresses the valuation of void spaces left when fluid are extracted from the grounds, especially in the case of an injection. The original law protected operators who wished to inject fluid back into the depleted pore spaces for no additional compensation. 
Many landowners appealed the decision, saying that they felt those now voided poor spaces held monetary value. It was a tough battle from both sides, but Northeast District Judge Anthony Benson claimed this law was unconstitutional, saying it, quote, acts to give North Dakota landowners value from poor space to the oil and gas industry for free under the guise of the North Dakota Industrial Commission, end quote. Oil and gas companies are still expected to push back on the issue, and it is certain that many appeals will be filed. This is likely not the last of the issue, as it could easily gain federal attention, and that's kind of confusing, but basically, you know, bring oil out of the ground, you got a poor space. Sometimes companies want to inject, you know, CO2 for UR reasons, or wastewater, like we looked at with UIC wells, and uh, they, they were just kind of assuming that the landowners would let them do that, which is, I guess, what I assumed <laughs> would work out too, but now the landowners are going, no, this is a vessel that holds something, it's a container, I want to charge you for it. This is really cool, actually. I, I think that this obviously has some potentially negative consequences for the extraction industry. However, for landowners, this is, could be a boon. I mean, there's countless uh, wastewater injection wells th across the U.S. Growing carbon sequ sequestration projects uh, are going to use these void spaces. Um, so this could be really cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to following this. Yeah, so thanks to North Dakota and the Bakken area for highlighting all of the intricacies that come with the United States and private land ownership. But we can't do a disservice to one of the biggest basins out there. We haven't even talked about Texas, much less the Permian. So I guess I'll go ahead and jump right into that. First things first, New Mexico. I know I just said Texas, but New Mexico is displeased. They're one of the many western states whose budget was already struggling before the federal land drilling moratorium. A heavy dependency on oil and gas has been rewarding in the past, especially when it generated enough money to afford free in-state college tuition. Unfortunately, too much of the land in New Mexico, just like we saw with Wyoming, is federal land. In 2018, lease sales of that federal land brought in half a billion dollars to the state and opened more of the Permian Basin to operators, bringing in even more revenue as taxes. Even if New Mexico was to fully rely on renewable power in the area from wind to solar, neither the state or federal government would collect royalties or severance tax on alternative forms of energy. New Mexico currently provides even a 10% tax credit on solar and deems the tech tax-exempt in property value. Free college is going to struggle to exist if the state can't find a better way to balance the budget. And really, again, this just highlights the poor, poor timing of this federal drilling ban. We just came off a terrible year. And then you got to tell people who are reliant on production to, okay, now stop drilling. That prices are getting better. Yeah, and, and now we're going to see New Mexico probably go into a cycle of cost cutting, which will harm all of the policies that they've just implemented uh, in the last several years. Alrighty. While it's easy to view the Keystone XL cancellation as mostly detrimental to budget safety and relations, some Permian producers remain optimistic. Kirk Edwards, CEO of Ladigo Petroleum, says he's never understood why Permian people have been supportive of it, its direct competition to us. And this pipeline having been taken away, to me, is a relief for Permian producers out here. He continues to mention the fact that Canada burns about 3 billion cubic feet of gas per day to heat up their tar sands to a point that allows the oil to be mobile. So it is much dirtier than the oil produced in Texas, which now flares at a record low since 2012. Additionally, most operations in Texas take place on private lands, so they are safe from that as well. The biggest threat at this point is the potential for a ban of fracking, but that is nothing more than a rumor at this point. 
guess it's really easy just to read the news and immediately go, oh, the U.S., we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Why would we do this? But it's good to look at the positive sides of this. I didn't even think about that. I mean, we have enough oil as is. Why do we need dirtier oil being piped in? I mean, I, I, I also think we should make an effort to work with Canada. So at least there's some people who are happy with this decision. Yeah, and uh, you know the Permian's just coming off of a massive phase of uh, increasing their transportation through pipelines. So I'm sure, for at least for Permian producers, they're going to see a, a positive price pressure over the course of the next several uh, um, years. And you know we can't talk about the Permian without talking about the Eagleford. So uh, I did my best to scrounge something up, and this is what I found. Well, it does make sense for those in the Permian to be happy that competition from Canada has now been limited they may have an entirely different competitor. The Eagleford Basin does not receive nearly as much attention and love as the Permian, but it does produce oil that emits far less greenhouse gases, and you heard in the last article, the Permian's down to levels as low as it was in 2012. A study by the Oil Climate Index in 2016 shows that the Eagleford and Bakken shales have some of the lowest emissions per barrel globally. This means that from a purely environmental standpoint, the Eagleford will likely win favor from the federal government should Biden choose to curb domestic oil production. Not much going on in the Eagleford, but future potential is exciting. Yeah, and I think if you add in the fact that compared to the Permian, the uh, amount of development occurring in the Eagleford is is slightly more sustainable, especially if there is a fracking ban instituted. Um, so I, I think the as it has been for a long, long time, the Eagleford is here to stay. All right, let's move over to everybody's favorite state and basin, California. All right, so before Biden got the chance to introduce the federal lands drilling ban, California Congressman Jimmy Panetta reintroduced the California Central Coast Conversion Act. The bill was similar to the Biden moratorium in the sense that all new oil and gas leasing on federal land in the Central Coast would be banned. With that bill, the BLM will be required to complete and publish a report looking at the environmental cost of oil and gas drilling in these parts. They are being asked to include impacts on air, greenhouse emissions, climate change, groundwater, surface water, seismicity, wildlife and plant species, low-income communities, communities of color, and indigenous communities. Wow, this could be a lot of work for the BLM out there. If adverse impacts are discovered, the BLM may lose that land. Representative Panetta said, as a federal legislator, I strive to make decisions based on evidence and I expect federal agencies to do the same. Until the BLM completes a detailed analysis of the harmful impacts of new oil and gas drilling we will have on our pristine environment, the agency should not be able to proceed. All right. So I I try to keep things objective on this podcast. I know we all do, but Representative Panetta, I I must ask if the BLM is conducting that report I'd like you to look at the decreased amount of deaths associated with famine or other environmental causes. Well, sure, if we look at purely environmental factors, then maybe we should just get rid of humans altogether then because we're having no positive benefit. Th- these reports are just, it's just busy work. Yeah, and, and I really like his stance. Um, you know, federal decisions should be made on evidence and fact. Uh, however, the reality of data is that you can find data that supports pretty much anything. Yeah. Next up, we've got CalGem, and uh, they proudly announced that it issued 23% fewer drilling permits on the year and approved 16% more permits for plugging and abandonment. While the state regulatory influence definitely played its part, 
Some are quick to point out that these numbers are likely a direct result of the pandemic and not CalGEM. Regardless, CalGEM released a statement claiming, New state policies, combined with increased enforcement by CalGEM, are driving the increase in oil and gas operators permanently removing wells from operation, end quote. CEO of the California Independent Petroleum Associate, Rock Zierman, was quick to point out that more than two-thirds of California's petroleum supply was imported last year. And you know where we stand on this. We won't hash out how we feel, but... Yeah, I mean, again, hey, congrats, CalGEM. You're doing your job. Uh, but you're also contributing to the lack of supply in your uh, state. so Especially when it's pitched as uh, what they quoted, permanently removing wells from operation. All right, so finishing off this basin breakdown, we got the scoop stack. Texas may not be alone in their support for the revocation of the Keystone XL permit. Mickey Thompson, former head of the Oklahoma Independent Petroleum Association, said, We do not need 800 barrels a day of anybody's crude oil coming to Cushing, Oklahoma, just to sit there. While the U.S. has been making significant progress on domestic crude reserves, it certainly wouldn't help to have more than oil imported from Canada. Thompson continued to argue that more jobs would have been lost in Oklahoma if the pipeline was allowed to operate. While it certainly can be argued many ways, one thing is certain. The relationship between Canada and the United States is certainly tarnished from the Biden's decision. Again, I like that people are finding the positive, right? Hey, we already had quite a, we're on that high end of the five-year average. We have too much oil anyways. What would we have done with it? But uh, I don't know. I still think it would have been better to go through with that. Maybe not better for just the United States, but for partners, I think it would have been beneficial. Yeah, and, and really, this comes down to uh, Canada's takeaway capacity. The perspective that they don't need more oil in Cushing, Oklahoma, makes a lot of sense. However, there is a general net benefit to having the pipeline, and there are specific benefits to not having a pipeline. So at the end of the day, it's, it's unfortunate, but effective for price. And then lastly, the state of Oklahoma is prepping for the worst. I mean, oil and gas is not exclusive to the West. Oklahoma is beginning to prepare for what they are predicting to be a rather difficult era. Although little of the land in Oklahoma is public or federal, many individuals have mentioned that they feel like sitting ducks waiting for unknown legislation to pass. Dewey Bartlett of the Oklahoma Energy Producer Alliance said, regardless of his political beliefs, he panicked when he heard Biden say he plans to move away from fossil fuels. If that is the case, he believes not only will Oklahoma be devastated, but so will the entire economy. And I've included that article last because a lot of this month, I, I know this episode's a bit shorter, but everyone's worried about the newest legislation. Those are the biggest stories. So again, I mean, February's almost over as we record this. So hopefully we see some progress as we go through. And I, I do think we can come out of this better, but I don't know. That's just my <laughs> poisonous optimism. I'm optimistic. I mean, a, a higher oil price is great, but there's still a lot of pain in terms of both local state economies and also uh, uh, bankruptcies throughout the industry. So we're, we'll see what happens here in the next month. But that is the end of this episode, and we will be signing off. You can go ahead and find Gunner on LinkedIn if you want to. I'm sure many of you listening probably still know him or work with him. So be sure to add him. You can go to rarepetro.com. Look at the About Us page to find both of our contact information. Other than that, while you're there, look at the rest of the content we put out. I know Kevin's not here today, but he is probably slaving away on a periodical that is certainly going to teach you a thing or two about the industry that you never even thought you'd learn. So find the rest of that content, read it, listen to it. 
see what Red Petro can do for you. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.